The liberating thing about death is in its fairness to women, its acceptance of blacks, its special consideration for the sick. And I like the way that children aren't excluded, homosexuals are welcomed and militants aren't banned. The really wonderful thing about death is that all major religions agree on it, all beliefs take you there, all philosophy bows before it, all arguments end there. Con men can't con it, thieves can't nick it, bullies can't scare it, magicians can't trick it, boxers can't punch it, nor critics dismiss it, don't knows can't not know, the lazy can't miss it, governments can't ban it, or the army defuse it, judges can't jail it, lawyers can't sue it, capitalists can't bribe it, socialists can't share it, terrorists can't jump it, the third world aren't spared it, scientists can't quell it, nor can they disapprove it, doctors can't cure it, surgeons can't move it, Einstein can't halve it, Guevara can't free it, the thing about dead is we're all going to be it. Those last two lines, the thing about dead is we're all going to be it. The teacher, whose words we're examining in Ecclesiastes, would have liked Steve Turner's poem, Death Lib, as he reasons there in verse 19 of chapter 3, surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awakes them both. As one dies, so dies the other. And wanting to reinforce his point, the teacher acknowledges uncertainty about what happens to the spirit of a person after he or she dies, but is sure, verse 20, that the bodies of the human and the animal both lay dead in the dust. That is their destiny. So the teacher repeats again, as we've seen throughout the book, his assessment of life, everything is meaningless. Remember the original word behind that that word meaningless is hebel, and a better translation than meaningless is fleeting, breath, vapour, impermanent. And you really see the truth of it when you're talking about death, don't you? Because of death, your life and mine is but a breath on this world. It makes a fleeting impact on the earth and on time. The teacher sees that death renders then a life of toil and striving for gain as futile. As Paul Kelly sang, you can't take it with you, or in its T-shirt slogan form, responding to the materialist mantra, he who dies with the most toys wins, he who has the most toys just dies anyway. The teacher isn't the first or the last person to observe that death is the ultimate reality for us, but not everyone responds the same way as him. Take Niles Nihilist. Niles the Nihilist doesn't see any value in life because of death. He agrees with the teacher that because of life, he would say life literally is meaningless. He doesn't accept notions of God and morality, so there's no intrinsic value to life. Some Nihilists consider suicide. So Tony, uh, a character... Um, portrayed by the comedian Ricky Gervais in a comedy I recently watched, considers suicide because his life has no meaning following the death of his wife, who was everything, who was his whole world. 
That's Niles the Nihilist. Harry the Hedonist, well, for Harry, death causes Harry to want to get as much out of life as he can while he still has time. His life philosophy is, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And associated with, with that attitude in Harry is a, a practical atheism. Um, pleasures don't satisfy forever, but forever doesn't exist, so who cares, is a sort of thinking. And it drives him to... Uh, strive for gain, that that's his motivation in life, that striving for gain that the teacher we've seen has been so critical of. And it leads to self-indulgence and pleasuring himself, his family and his friends as the driver for Harry the Hedonist. As we go on, we're going to have to see why the teacher would say that Niles and Harry have it wrong. But first... Let's review the teacher's advice to us about how to live in the face of the reality of death. So that's my second point, enjoy the gifts. Last week I urged you to accept your limitation as a creature when it comes to controlling your life and to enjoy life as the gift God intends it to be. That was an attempt to apply verse 12. If you glance to verse 12 in chapter 3, I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. So how have you gone this week? I've been trying to practice thanking God every day for the things in my life, not to get so occupied in the struggle and strive for gain, but to focus on thankfulness that I have a life to toil at. I've been trying to list things to thank God for in a daily prayer. And I've made a better effort, I think, probably have to check with Catherine, but I think I've made a better effort at initiating praying and thanking God for things before we eat. All this has helped me to be a little bit more calm in the face of the stresses of life in this world as well. Well, if you didn't try that this week, how about being encouraged by the similar observation the teacher makes here at verse 22 in chapter 3? I saw that there's nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot, for who can bring them to see what will happen after them? Again, as I said last week, don't read work or hear toil, don't think of it narrowly as paid work. It's whatever you do as part of living in the world. And the teacher is saying that we should see life as a gift. He thinks that given we can't control death, there's nothing better for us in the meantime till our day of death to enjoy life. Enjoy life every day because you don't know when your number will be up. When you'll die, You can't tell, as he says, for who can bring them to see what will happen after them. We don't know when we'll die, so why let each day be dominated by thoughts of death like Niles the Nihilist is? The teacher is going to go on and highlight that God exists and is knowable, so purpose and meaning still exists even in the face of death. More of that in a moment. But do you think that maybe the teacher sounds a bit like Harry the Hedonist here? Like, enjoy life? 
Some people have actually accused the teacher of being a hedonist and put him down, therefore, as unworthy to have his writings in the Bible. However, the teacher's different. He's not a hedonist. He insists that there's a difference between lust and love and grateful receiving and greedy consuming, between sober regard and selfish use. So the teacher's not advocating self-indulgence like hedonism ultimately does. The teacher will encourage us to do good, not to use others to get more, but to use what God's given us to serve others. And that's important, and this is my third point, because God will judge how we use his gift of life. So often with hedonism, as I said, there's a practical atheism. If if there's no God, they reason... Practically, then, in practice, they'll live as if he doesn't exist. They live as if what God thinks about how we use the gifts of life and creation he's given us is of no consideration. But in the eyes of the teacher, that is foolish. Harry, the hedonist, is a fool because, look at verse 17 of chapter 3, I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there'll be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. God will judge us for how we use his gift. And the teacher needs to remember this. He seems to give himself a bit of a pep talk when he looks around and he's struggled by the way people striving for gain leads them to corrupt the justice system. Have a look at verse 16 of chapter 3. I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. No doubt the wickedness comes about because the instruments of justice are controlled or influenced by people who can offer easy material gains like money and women. It happened then and it still happens today as the existence and busyness of our independent commission against corruption testifies. It's the very same problem, a symptom of the very same problem, that causes the teacher at the beginning of chapter 4 a deep lament about the lack of fairness and justice in the world. So look at verse 1 of chapter 4. I looked and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. Why do people oppress others? Why do people misuse their power? What's the motivation behind that? Well, of course, it's always for material gain. So employers not paying their staff properly, think in recent times, 7-Eleven and Bunnings we heard this week. Or the more extreme examples, the child slavery or the sex trafficking trade, even in the suburbs of Australian cities, that goes on. And almost every time if you ask, why is this happening, it'll be because someone is trying to make money. They're trying to save on costs to make more money, to make their profit, to, in other words, gain. It's an attitude to life underlying that, which is that life is all about striving for gain, even if that costs others. The 
the teacher despairs at that because it's so widespread. So much does he despair that he's almost comical there in verse 3 when he, he says, well, maybe it'd be better not to be born. Then you just ha- wouldn't have to see the evil that is done under the sun. A practical way to do that is just don't watch the nightly news. Yet there's comfort in his other thought there in verse 17 again. Back to verse 17 of chapter 3 again. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there'll be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. It really matters how you use the gift of life that God has given you because God will judge every activity, every deed. That includes the players in a corrupt judicial system, the unfair employers, the oppressive rulers and the people who traffic in other people. But it also includes the nihilist who just lays about and doesn't care to help others and the hedonists who help themselves at others' expense. And that's the problem here. There is a God and he cares how people treat his creation. That's the problem here for those who ignore God and not treat people properly. So the proverb states in verse of chapter 14 of verse 31 states a great truth. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honours God. Remember how we saw last week that part of our toil as we enjoy God's gifts is to do good with them? really feels here, don't you think, that it's all come together. You're not in control of your destiny. You certainly won't live forever. So quit striving to gain. See every day of your life as a gift from God. Enjoy it and use it, your life, what he gives you in it, to do good for others as well. But whatever you do, as you do that, don't take the other, don't fork off and start worshipping the gifts rather than the giver of the gifts. And that's my fourth and final point. And worshipping the gifts is the danger for hedonists like Harry and for his materialist cousin Molly. I thought of Molly when I read the teacher's insight there in chapter 4, verse 4. I saw that all toil and all achievements spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What drives Molly to strive so hard to gain a new dress or a better car or a more modern house or more posts of her at famous tourist spots? What is it? Well, the... uh, Teacher suggests there in verse 4, it's her envy of other people. It starts when we're young, doesn't it? It'll be happening probably right now. There's probably a little toddler down there in creche who's very happy with the toy he's got. Then he's going to see another child with a different toy and he wants that one. I'm very satisfied with my computer till I look too closely at someone else's newer one. In our materialist culture, we live with the suspicion that others are gaining more from life than we are, and so it's so easy to end up competing with others in a bit of a rat race, striving to outdo them. We'd never um, 
polite. We, we wouldn't ever say that. We'd, we'd say it more politely. We'd, we'd talk about window shopping or updating the model or providing for my family. But call a spade a, a spade. What it really is is keeping up with the Joneses because we think the Joneses' life is more happy than ours because they've got X. But the truth is that the Jones are as discontent as you because they're trying to aspire to be like the Browns. You know, of course, deep down that it doesn't really get you anywhere because we've all tried it, but we're never fully satisfied, are we? We're never really content. We never really find the stuff that we long for makes us happy when we've got it. And, of course, what will the teacher call that? Hebel. Chasing after the wind. You know you'll never arrive if your motivations in life are dictated by those you aspire to be like. Be careful if you relax by looking at junk mail ads or scanning the net for the latest electronic gadgets or fashion. Just having a look, seeing what's out there. Because you'll always find something better than what you have. Can you do that and be strong enough to resist feeling dissatisfied with what God has given you to enjoy? I can't. So I don't look at the ads unless we've already made a decision that we definitely have to replace something or get something. So when I clear the letterbox and there's the the roll of junk mail catalogues, they never get in the house. They go straight in the blue bin unless we've got a reason to look at them because I know it's so easy to envy the people around me. Molly the materialist lives like matter, experiences are the measure of life. She strives for those things, but she'll never arrive while ever she worships created things rather than her creator. Whereas her creator is a generous giver of good gifts, Molly's God, Memon, just keeps on taking. And that's the bind she's caught in. There are alternatives to living like Molly the materialist. And we see the next one in verse 5, though the teacher doesn't recommend it. It is a lazy detachment. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. The teacher's not saying, well, take God's gifts, lay back, just enjoy yourself. Wisdom always rates work over idleness. As we see later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says to the Thessalonians, see that your daily life, sorry, work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you'll not be dependent on anybody. The teacher is not saying don't work and toil. His issues with our striving to outdo others, living as if what it's all about is getting those material things. The teacher observes that that's not the way to live in God's world. There's a better way, verse 6. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. What do you make of that idea, one handful with tranquility? Projects an idea, does, don't you think, of contentment with what we have? And the teacher's urging us to a, a certain contentment with what God's given us and what we can gain through working to provide for our needs. We're, we're to see our work as part of our life as a gift, but that will, make a, that will mean we need to make a choice 
to step out of the rat race and it might mean letting others pass us by so we can be content with what we have. But does that mean then that we don't try and improve ourselves, that we shouldn't study or acquire a new skill? Well, not, not at all. What it means is, is if your attitude to life is to be content with what God has given you rather than to striving to gain and to get more, it means that your hopes for doing the study, your hopes for after the study is finished, won't be about getting more material things. It'll be about serving God and others. Um, so watch yourselves. What are our motives for doing things like the further study and going for the uh, promotion? The teacher is challenging us here, isn't he? He's challenging us about uh, our motivations for life. He's reminding us that life is a gift from God and that we're to uh, engage in it and enjoy it, but not to uh, strive to gain and, and, and get more. And not surprisingly, he challenges the workaholism that so often is fueled by materialism. He shares a sad little story there in verse 8 of chapter 4 about a man who has no one bar himself to provide for, yet there was no end to his toil and his eyes were not content with his wealth. He asked himself, for whom am I toiling and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This guy is clearly not Harry the head nurse, he's Wally the workaholic. Don't be fooled by his wealth, though. His life is not a happy one. The teacher labels Wally's life meaningless and miserable. Where's it going to get him? Well, maybe just an early grave. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil, Wally. If you find satisfaction in your work, it's a gift of God. The teacher's already said that, but Wally has no satisfaction There's no end to his toil. Jesus told a parable of another Wally, but this Wally's middle name actually turns out to be Harry. He decides to adopt a hedonist lifestyle. After a successful season on the farm, this man, who is already rich, decides to build bigger barns so as to store up his big surplus. And his retirement plan is... You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink and be merry. That's what he says to himself. The problem for this Harry is that he hasn't read Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 19. Remember, humans are like the animals. They share the same fate. Or verse 17, that God will judge us all for our acts on this earth. Jesus goes on. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? And Jesus comments, this is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. The teacher would call this farmer meaningless. What he's done, a man works so he can just live for pleasure, so he can be a hedonist. But he's never satisfied. And like all hedonists, he lives as if life is all there is and ignores God and his judgment. And God judges that this man hasn't acted properly with his wealth. 
He hasn't done the good that anyone gifted with excess wealth clearly should. Jesus' point is about the problem of greed and ignoring our creator by worshipping the gifts. And that's a problem for Harry the Hedonist, Molly the Materialist and Wally the Workaholic. Niall, Niles the Nihilist also has a problem of greed, but his is not greed for things and experiences. It's the greed to take God's place in the world, to make meaning and sense of life on his terms without God, which he inevitably can't, so he rejects life altogether and certainly doesn't see any reason for doing good to others. Of course, the teacher lived long before Jesus came on the scene. And when Jesus was here, he made it clear that he's the model for living each day as a gift from God and doing good with what we have. When you read the Gospels, you see Jesus thanking his heavenly Father for things like food. You see him struggling through pain and rejection, but still trying to do good for others. And we know that in dying on the cross, he made it possible for us to be forgiven our sins and welcome into God's family for eternity. Yet, there will still be a day, one day when he returns, when he'll judge what good we have done with the gifts he's given us. It won't endanger our salvation if we've joined his family, but the New Testament speaks of a judgment which will lead to a reward. It isn't clear what that reward might be. I've often joked that maybe it's a better seat closer to the front in the heavenly uh, gathering. Whatever the reward is, it'll be good. We all have to work to go about living in this world in the meantime. That you can do that, count as a gift from God. Enjoy the life he's given you. Remember to list the things and be thankful for them every day. But don't worship and serve those things. Use them to live and to do good. And when the time comes, you will die on this earth and your body will return to dust. But because of the resurrection of Jesus, we who've joined his family will also one day experience a physical resurrection to be with our Heavenly Father and Jesus our Lord forever, be it in the back row or the front row. The teacher himself, you would have seen in our reading, wasn't sure what happens to the human spirit after death. We know that Jesus has defeated death and his people will share in that victory for eternity, which is very good reason, don't you think, to keep doing good and praying for the Niles, Harrys, Mollies and Wallies in our lives to recognise him too.